0: This has been a full day so far, and it's been a great day. We've studied from the book of James early this morning. We've studied in the book of Matthew at midday. We've remembered our Lord's sacrifice in our communion time this morning and rejoicing at his work on our behalf. And we come now to this pastoral letter written to Timothy by the Apostle Paul to give us clear information about what the local church and particularly its leadership is to be all about. What is the church to look like? What is it to operate like? How is it to uh, relate to itself? And how is it to bring glory and honor to God? And that is Paul's concern for Timothy, and that's our concern tonight as we study it together. How can Grace Church be conformed and be transformed into a church that would match the biblical directives given to us in the New Testament? And this is one section where biblical directives are prevalent There are a lot of directives given to us. In fact, last week we spent time on the biblical directives given to ladies within the assembly. It was a valuable time of study. we were reminded of the high calling of ladies in the church and the specific role that they are to live out in the ministry of the local assembly. Particularly, Paul was concerned that Timothy understand that women were not to teach or exercise authority over men. And it's as if Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in writing this letter, in dictating this letter to a menuensis who would be writing it for him, naturally moved then to, well, if ladies are not to be exercising authority and leadership in the church, let's define for Timothy again what is required of those who would be leaders within the local church. And so the bridge, logically, is very natural. It's from men to women, it's from learners to leaders, and Paul here moves into a very pointed description of the characteristics of local church leadership, particularly elders, overseers, and pastors. They're all interchangeable synonyms for the same role within the local assembly. Failure in the pastoral office is all too common. I would wager that many of you have been burned or have been wounded by the failure of your leaders within the local church. Its consequences are devastating on the flock of God when leadership crumbles and is disqualified. And we who are called and commissioned for servant leadership in the local church are particularly concerned with Satan's attack against us and the threat of failure to the cause of Christ. John MacArthur in his commentary on 1 Timothy leaves these reasons as some of the reasons that shepherds ought to be particularly wary of deceptions to sin. We are Satan's biggest target. If he can attack leadership, then he has access to the flock. The shepherding principle stands true. If the shepherd is removed from the gate and protecting the sheep, then the sheep are vulnerable to the attack of any predator that would come in. And so the predator that had any mindset of getting to the sheep, his first target ought to be the shepherd. Because without the shepherd there to cast stones or to strike out with his shepherd's staff, the sheep are open game. Secondly, our... Our fall as leaders, if in fact we fall, hurts worse and it has a louder thud than those who are not in leadership. Our judgment is more severe. James 3.1 tells us we stand as examples, therefore we are to be judged in accordance with that example. To whom much is given, right? Much is required. And our hypocrisy as leaders, if in fact we fall in leadership of the local church, is more damaging because of the preaching that accompanies our life before the local church. So the primary service of your shepherds, at this point David and myself, is to feed and to equip and to instruct. And when there is failure from one who has taught and instructed and preached, it is particularly damaging, it is particularly hurtful to the body of Christ. It undermines our confidence in the message that has been declared to us. So coming off of the role of women, Paul moves into this male leadership within the church and he makes clear delineations and characteristics and sets them before us as the standard by which we would judge the validity, and the credibility of those who would lead the local church. And I'm not unaware this evening, double negative, I am I am aware that this list is difficult for us to study. Lists are hard. They're hard from a preaching standpoint because you already know what's coming next because it's a list. We just keep going down a list. So it's hard for us to stay tuned in. And yet this list may be difficult for us to stay focused on, but I'm also aware that this list is the standard sheet. It is the standard for my life before you as a shepherd. It is. And I can't run from the fact that I stand before this passage and my heart is broken, my heart cries out for grace that these things would be true. Not only do I stand before you as a shepherd under the judgment of this passage and under the critique of this passage, but I stand before you as a very young shepherd one who has not seen these traits lived out for years and years of faithful ministry. And so at the front end of ministry, there is all the more danger for failure in the character of the local church pastor. It's not that years gain us some kind of seniority that keeps us away from failure. But it is true that the less experience we have or the less less of an uh, understanding of all that will be brought to us in the form of temptation as leaders in the church, the less we have an understanding and a knowledge from experience, the more vulnerable we become. So this passage is a standard. It is convicting. Nothing that is here except for one particular characteristic that is a gifting by God of the shepherd. None of this is isolated to the shepherd. All of these traits are to be mirrored in your lives as well. Each one of these is found elsewhere in Scripture as your responsibility as followers of Jesus Christ. And yet the shepherd is to be a model. He is to be an example, not just a talking head that dispenses information, but one whose life backs up the message and the calling that is his from God. And so the accountability is high. Christ died for His church. And the leadership in the local assembly is a delegated leadership of under-shepherds who serve the chief shepherd. Right? Call no man father. I'm not Father Adam. I am an under-shepherd. I am underneath of the leadership of the head of this church. And the head of this church has given his word clearly as to what the responsibilities and the characteristics of the leaders who serve his name and his church are to be. So make no mistake, the calling for church leadership is high. It is an exalted calling, but the demands are also immeasurably high and in great demand for grace. Because nothing short of the gospel is at stake in church leadership, right? Remember what we've already studied from this letter of Paul to Timothy, and that is the church is to be all about its mission of evangelizing the world, of bringing the good news of the gospel to sinners all over the world. And nothing hamstrings that mission more than failure or um, disqualified leadership within the local assembly. So, our goal tonight will be to examine three elements or to take a closer look at the three elements that are contained here in the description of the local church leader. And I've just split them up into the calling of the local church leader or the shepherd, the character of the shepherd, and then the concerns of the shepherd. And that's just to give some break in this passage and to break up the lists that are here laid before us. So let's read this together before we get into our study time and get ourselves familiar with what is here and then we'll dig a little deeper and study this for the next couple minutes together. Verse 1, chapter 3, begins this way. The saying is trustworthy. That's a common phrase. We've already seen that. Back in 115 when he speaks of Jesus coming to save sinners, it's Paul's way of setting apart a phrase for particular emphasis. The saying is Trustworthy. If anyone, or any man particularly, aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. This is the word of the Lord and continues on in verse 8 speaking of Leadership of the deacons within the local assembly. But we tonight, for our time together in our study, will look at this one the overseer, the bishop, if you have an old King James, and that is synonymous with a pastor, a shepherd, and an elder within the church. Now, let's examine first the calling of the shepherd, of the local church leader. And look at the description that is given for us in verse 1 about this one who would lead in the local church. If any man, Paul says, aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task or a good work. There's an aspiration. An aspiration or aspires simply means reaching out for, grasping for the particular office. There will be men within the church who aspire, who reach for the office of overseer or of a bishop. And that is synonymous with an elder. In fact, we can look at that in verse 28 of Acts chapter 20. We see Paul here with the Ephesian elders. And he says here to the elders of the church... Uh, verse 17 says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. So these are the elders of the Ephesian church. Timothy is at what church? Yes, he's at Ephesus. Yes. So many of these men would have been the same men who were with Timothy. These are the Ephesian elders. And notice verse 28, how Paul addresses them. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you Bishops, overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And so he is addressing elders as those who have been given oversight, the ministry of overseeing the church of God. Titus 1, 5-9 is the parallel passage to 1 Timothy 3. So if you wanted to do a comprehensive study of the demands and the character qualities of church leadership, Titus 1, 5-9 is the parallel passage which speaks directly to the term elders or episkopos paralleling itself in a synonym to overseers or bishops and then 1 Peter 5 is the third passage that is so common to our understanding in fact these are the big 3 that we spend or 4 that we spend our time on Acts 20 1 Timothy 3 Titus 1 and then 1 Timothy chapter 5 In verse 1, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder, Peter says, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock, that is pastor. Shepherd is the same word for pastor. Pastor the flock of God that is among you exercising oversight. Not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And so in 1 Peter 5, all three terms are used. Elders, shepherds, that's pastors, and then finally overseers, those who would do the work of oversight. Those are synonymous terms, and those are all wrapped into one particular office and role within the church, and it is this office that men aspire to have. That aspiration needs to be met with a desire of their heart, but the desire in verse 1 is not a nebulous desire, nor is it a desire for status or for position or for title. But rather, the desire is for the work that is the office of overseer. Because it says in verse 1, He desires a noble task, a work, a job. Say, what's the what's the distinction that's there? What's the importance of what is there? It is common and it is natural, I think, in our sinful bent to desire roles that we see as giving influence or status or some perceived value to us. And yet, the one who desires to be an overseer must check that desire against any sinful ambition, any selfish goals of being propped up as something other than a servant of the Most High. As a man of God, as a mouthpiece for God, and nothing more, a channel for His truth and a shepherd under His leadership, he must check that against this comment from Paul. It is a work that is to be desired. So there are many who desire something about the office of overseer but it is few who desire the work that is entailed in this office you say what is the work of a pastor of an overseer of an elder within the local church what is the role what is the job to be well it's it's given to us throughout the new testament epistles in 1st timothy we find it in 517 where paul will again address this and Timothy's relation to other elders. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So elders are to rule or to give leadership and direction to the local church. They're also to teach and to preach. 5.17 2 Timothy 4 They are to pray for the sick. James 5.14 Call for the elders to come. They are to care for the church body, 1 Peter 5, which we just read. They are to care for the flock. They are to ordain and set apart other church leaders, 1 Timothy 4, verse 14. So the office of overseer is a demanding and a daunting work. It is not a status symbol. It is not a stamp. It is not something that is granted because of influence or external means. This is particularly important to stress with young people. Some of you are going to have sons who desire, or grandsons who desire and voice their desire to be full-time ministers for the church, in leadership of the church. David Morris, with our kids this evening, his testimony is, I I believe if I've got this right, he he was saved, the Lord saved him at... I want to say six or seven, by the time he was eight, he desired to serve Christ as a pastor. By the time he was 12, he really desired to go to seminary and to study further and prepare for the work of preaching and teaching and feeding God's sheep. He was one who was raised in a family and under the testimony of a dad who was a shepherd and a pastor and understood the work that went into it. I, on the other hand, though not saved, also made some early claim and desire to be a pastor at the earliest age, which I jettisoned at later time in my teenage years and stood apart from all the way until the Lord broke my heart in college and I submitted to his desire for me. But I was not desiring the work, the hard work of an overseer. Rather, I desired what I saw to be polished, influential people, none other than my dad at the forefront of that, who was certainly all about the work of oversight and shepherding, and yet I had no understanding that drove my desire. So it is important for us to work with people who have a heart for God, who have a desire to serve Him, who then feel it is appropriate for them to pursue church leadership, to check their desire against This particular comment from Paul. Unmentioned here is the final step in the calling of church leadership, and that is ordination or affirmation from present elders within the church. So, men, this evening it's appropriate and it's honorable for you to aspire and desire church leadership. It's appropriate. But it must be an aspiration and a desire that's grounded in the reality of the responsibility and the necessary character that goes with the role of shepherd, overseer, and elder. Through my college years, I began dating Renee the second week of my undergraduate studies. And uh, much to the consternation of my parents, I had all these... uh, very vocal dreams of just hanging out with as many different young ladies as I could and uh, without saying so much, playing the field throughout my college years. And then when I was a junior, when I turned upperclassman, I would get serious about finding who the Lord would have for me as a potential mate. And uh, I vocalized that. And so two weeks in, I called my parents and said, oh, man, I have met this girl. And so my parents were concerned, but my wife spent all four years, except for those first two weeks, and there wasn't a lot going on except for the basics of getting school started, all four years with me, knowing my heart and hearing my words as they tattledailed on my heart. Because all through my undergraduate career, I desired nothing more than position and title. Devoid of responsibility, devoid of the influence and the accountability that character would demand, and desiring simply to have a position rather than a God-granted responsibility of servant leadership. And God, in his grace and his kindness, frustrated that desire over and over and over again. From student leadership to church ministry, he frustrated the desire of my heart, selfish desire and ambition on my part for a position over servant leadership. It wasn't until my senior year that God broke me under, that, under, under the pressure of consistent frustration and I realized and I learned for the first time his desire to use those who had no agenda of their own, only a submission to his work and to his will no matter what that would be. And that was really the beginning of God shaping and molding us for ministry. And so it is the noble task. It is not a it is not a title. It is not a position that is desired or aspired to, but the work of an overseer. That is the particular nature of the call of local church leadership. All right, that moves us then to the character, and this is where we'll just spend just a moment. But this is the overarching umbrella of all of the rest of the list that is given to us as the accountability measure for church leadership. There is one overarching character of those who would shepherd and lead the local assembly under the direction of the head of the church, Jesus Christ. And that one overarching characteristic is that, verse 2, an overseer must be above reproach. That title, that statement, that term is the one under which everything else falls. Everything else that we'll study tonight is a description of what it is to live a life that is above that is above reproach. And so the character quality, if you say, what is the character of church leadership? The defining mark of church leadership is a life that is above reproach. The demands are many, the responsibilities are varied for the pastor, but his life must be one that is without reproach. You say, what does that mean? Without reproach or above reproach, standing above it, means basically, if I can boil it down for terminology that we would know, it is impossible to make a charge of error or defect stick against the overseer, elder, or pastor. The word actually reproach or above reproach gives us the sense of being held on a charge. And we understand this, right? And even in our culture, the police can hold you for a time, on a charge of a crime. They have limits on how long they can hold you. Because if the evidence doesn't back up the charge, they have to release you until they can make a charge again that would have evidence to stick to it. The concept here is that the shepherd, the overseer, the pastor, elder, is one who cannot be held on a charge of error, sinful habit, or defect. Accusation may come, but his life must be above reproach. He's not sinless. hope you understand that. If not, we need to hang out more. Shepherds are not sinless people, but the shepherd's life is to be without the habitual defect in character that would make it possible for accusation to come and to stand in defiance of the gospel that he serves. He's to be an example to the flock. In fact, let's do a little... Bible study tonight. Let's turn in our scriptures to Philippians chapter 3. A couple pages over to your left. Philippians chapter 3. As Paul here exemplifies what it is to be an example to the flock. Brothers, he says, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. In other words, Paul says, You can look at my life and you can live imitating me as I imitate Christ because I stand as an example to you. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, or chapter 3, rather, verse 9. Paul says, It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. That is, they didn't demand anyone's resources. They came and ministered without demanding something of the Thessalonian church. It wasn't because they didn't have the right to, but because they wanted to be an example to the people for the people to imitate. Hebrews 13, verse 7. This is a common verse to us, speaking of the elders who will give account for our souls. Remember your leaders. Those who spoke to you the Word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. The writer of Hebrews here is probably referring to leaders who were no longer with them, who had been martyred or who had been captured for their faith. Remember them. That's that they're not here anymore. Those who spoke to you. So here's the verbal aspect of pastoral ministry. Consider the outcome of their way of life. Here's the testimony of their faithfulness and then finally imitate their faith. So shepherds are to be examples to the flock. They are to be above reproach. They are to stand without being able to be held in accusation or with a charge of defect or error. That characteristic alone brings me to recognition of my own shortcoming and my desire for the grace of God to be evident in my life. This is nothing short of his work. You understand that? This isn't something that's mustered up. But the above-reproach umbrella is a work of grace in the leadership of the local church. So, that's the overarching characteristic. And in fact, that's the bookends to the list. At the beginning, it's above-reproach. At the very end, in verse 7, it's that outsiders consider him well, that, that he is considered and respected by those who are outside of the church. That is, his reputation goes beyond the walls Of the meeting place, but he is well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. That is the bookends of the above reproach life. Now, what does that look like? Well, that brings us to the third and final phase, and that is the concerns of the local church leadership. What are they to be concerned about internally and personally as they strive in grace for a life that is above reproach? These specific marks are given, and these are very sobering marks of the life of local church leadership. first one we find in verse 2, and we'll go quickly through these because of the nature of this list, the husband of one wife. These are moral obligations on the shepherd. These are not external obligations. So if you have understood this in the past or even been taught in the past that this means one wife at a time, or one wife in in specific, that he has to be married to a wife, or that there could only be one wife. And so if there was even one who is a widower that he would be disqualified from ministry, you you have been misinformed. The husband of one wife is a Greek phrase, and maybe you have this in your Bible if you have a little study Bible or something that gives comment, but the Greek phrase is... Technically translated, a man of one woman. This is a moral demand. This is not a functional demand on the shepherd. This is that the shepherd and the overseer of a local ministry is to be a one woman man. Whether he's single, whether he's married, whether he is without his wife due to death. He is to be a one woman man. He is to be pure in every way. He is to be isolated in His affections. There are not to be multiple women. Your local church shepherds are not flirts. They are not living a bachelor life within a married experience. They are one woman men. I've been encouraged and I have been blessed by the ministry of my pastor who encouraged me as a single guy to be a one-woman man. That was to prepare my heart and to focus my heart to be faithful to the wife that God would give me in the future. So the standard here is not one that is mere external. It is a standard that is an internal moral obligation for the shepherd. He is to be a one-woman man, whether he's married or not. Secondly, he's to be sober-minded. And really the next three all fit together into one idea. Sober-minded, self-controlled, and respectable all fall under one category, and that is discipline of his life. He has to be disciplined in his life. He has to be sober-minded, not under the influence of some other substance. That's really the term. Sober-minded here has a very real sense of wineless thinking. That's actually the sense of what's said. So he is sober-minded. He is a serious, clear-headed individual who thinks without being under the influence of a controlling substance. Not only that, he is self-controlled. He lives his life in a controlled manner. And respectable has the idea of orderly to it. He is an orderly person. There is order and there is purpose in his activities and in his lifestyle. And so as you evaluate and as you pray for the leaders of this church, myself included, these ought to be the desires of our heart. These are the standard by which we are held. And you can pray to this end. One woman men. Sober-minded men. Self-controlled men. Respectable men. This is the disciplined life. In fact, Paul further speaks of this in chapter 4. If you just turn one page over, chapter 4... In verse 7, he tells Timothy, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. You remember our discussion about that. But rather, train yourself for godliness. That is, discipline yourself for godliness. For while bodily training, exercise, is of little or some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Train yourself for godliness. Discipline your life for godliness. It is the mindset of an athlete who is competing. It is the mindset of a soldier who is going to battle, who sets aside civilian concerns and disciplines himself and orders his life for the purpose of serving and leading the local church. These are the characteristics that are laid out of the one who is above reproach. Next in our list in verse 2 is hospitable. And this speaks to the ministry of the local church leadership. The ministry life. They are to be hospitable. Lovers of strangers and visitors. Their home is to be an open door. This is something that's commanded of all Christians that we be hospitable. Romans 12, verse 13. Hebrews 13, 2, 1 Peter 4, 9. All speak to hospitable lifestyle within the Christian life. And yet... The leadership of the local church is to model that with their generosity, with their open lifestyle to those that they don't know, particularly, which is what hospitability actually deals with, hospitality deals with, but also to those that are within the local assembly. Also, in their ministry life, and this is the only characteristic that sets these men apart from deacons and other leaders within the church, is that they are gifted by the Spirit and are able or apt your Scripture may say, able to teach. They are particularly gifted for instruction. The primary responsibility of the elder pastor overseer and the fruit of his disciplined life is his feeding of the flock. No shepherd is worth his salt if he doesn't feed the sheep. I took really good care of them, chief shepherd. I guarded them. No wolves got in. I kept them away from anything that would harm them. I kept them isolated in their little pen so that they wouldn't be hurt. Yes, but they starved. They didn't survive because you didn't feed them. So the shepherd must be able to feed the sheep. He must be able to instruct. And this is, in fact, a spirit-initiated gifting. This is not something that is generated on his own. Verse 6 of chapter 4 speaks of this. Paul tells Timothy, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. So putting the truth, putting the reality of doctrine before the brothers. Verse 11 says, command and teach these things. This is what Timothy is to do as the leader of the local church. Verse 13, until I come devote yourself to public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching... We could go on and on and on. Second Timothy two fifteen and twenty four, Titus two one, Ephesians four. You remember Ephesians four? We studied that together. This is the very role or the very reason that leadership has been given to the church. He gave prophets, or he gave apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, so the pastor teachers, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ accomplished through the teaching ministry. This is the defining factor of the shepherd's life. He must be able to teach. Moving on quickly now into the list. He's not a drunkard. He does not live under the control of alcohol. It is what it says. He is not given to drunkenness. Drunkenness is sin. I hope you understand that in every way. Drunkenness is sin. And the shepherd is responsible... To keep himself at all times, as far as he can, from drunkenness. He's not to be given to much wine. His life is not to be driven by a desire for the control of something other than the Spirit. Ephesians 5, verse 18. Not only is he not a drunkard, now we move into several that are negatives. He's not a drunkard. He's not violent. He's not a striker, is the actual word. I trust you'll never see your shepherds at Grace Church punch someone else over a disagreement. He is not to be violent. He's not to be a striker, but he is to be gentle. That's the contrast given. Not violent, but gentle. This is the kindness that stands as a mark of the character of the man of God. He's not only to be gentle and not violent, but not quarrelsome either. Fighting is not the way of life for a shepherd. It's not what he thrives on. It's not what he lives for, to fight another battle, to have another knock-down, drag-out argument. Easy to approach with questions and concerns. In fact, over in Second Timothy, Paul elaborates on this. Excuse me, Second Timothy chapter 2, and verse 24. And the Lord's servant, Paul says, must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. Against him, that would be correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And so even in standing for truth and standing against error, even in the defense of the faith, the shepherd is to be marked by gentleness, not violence, and he is to be marked by a kindness, not a quarrelsome spirit that is angry and irritated and ready to do battle at every turn. I hope tonight that you are not sitting there taking inventory of shepherds that you've had who have lived these realities out. That's not the point at all. These are the exemplary characteristics of your leadership that you are to imitate. Right? So you can't sit here tonight. I'm just telling you, you can't. You can't sit here and go, well, this is a good sermon for Adam. He should have just stayed home in his living room and preached it to himself, and then we would have all been, uh, could have had an easier night tonight. That's not the point at all. These are all things that are commanded of us as followers of Christ. These are all characteristics that mark us as spirit filled individuals. And your leadership are to be your examples in these things. All right, not drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. And then finally in verse 3, the most prevalent i believe today particularly one that is prevalent in our society not a lover of money not a lover of money whether rich or poor pastors are to see money as a stewardship as an entrustment from god for the use for for his use not for their own use money is not to be the object of their affection often we think of The root of all evil coming from money itself. But it is the love of money that's the root of all evil. And the love of money is just as prevalent with the poor or the middle class as it is with the rich. There have been some very wealthy people who have no love of money. It's no object of their affection. And there have been poor people who had nothing, who spent their entire lives chasing after their chief affection the object of all of their love, which was nothing other than money, 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 money. And the characteristic of the false teachers, particularly in Paul's day, and no different in your day, I would add, the characteristic was that they were out for a buck. They were out for money. They were buying a new private jet so that they could get to their new location for ministry. Twelve million bucks, and you'll get a prayer hanky that will save someone. Okay? Just send us a couple thousand and we'll take care of whatever the particular promise is. Money, money, money. And the shepherd is not to be known. He is not to be marked by his love, his affection. His lifestyle is not to stand out as one who loves money. That's a high standard. These are all high standards that are given for the character and the life of the shepherd. Now we come to the most elaborate of all of these requirements. And it's the most personal and it's the most uh, fearful for me, I believe, and for all, because this is the one characteristic that Paul elaborates on more than any others. Here he says, here is the characteristic, the shepherd, the overseer, the leader, is to manage his own household well. He is to manage his own household. His own family is to be in order. And particularly with reference to his children. And Titus 1 deals with this same reality for the shepherd. With all dignity, keeping his children submissive. And then this rhetorical question is given to us, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So if the oversight of a few people within a very contained environment that is always present, if, if the shepherd can't manage the people who he lives with, if he cannot oversee and shepherd and care for them, then how is he to be given the responsibility of caring and watching over the church of God? And the answer is, he's not. He's not to be given that responsibility if he is not able to manage his own house. This command, I spoke to my daughter about it tonight, actually. Actually. At five months, Carissa seemed to respond well, said, babe, listen, little one, you are very important to the ministry of daddy. My pastor repeatedly reminded his sons, you are important to the ministry of our local church because it is my oversight and watch care over you that makes me even fit and credible to watch over the church that God has entrusted to us. That's a very real responsibility. That's a biblical responsibility and it is a biblical mindset. Nothing defames or discredits the ministry of a local church leader more than a family that is raging against or in rebellion to the very truths that he stands and proclaims week in and week out. And I stand before you as a son of a pastor who did that very thing. And but for the grace of God, within the summer of the culmination of my rebellious heart, if it weren't for the grace of God and the salvation that is mine through Christ because of God's grace, I would have forced my dad into stepping down from ministry. So it is the shepherd's responsibility to manage his own household because if this cannot be accomplished, the credibility for managing and overseeing and shepherding the church is lost. We're almost completed. Verse six. If this doesn't, just the pile just keeps getting more and more. The pressure is immense. Thankful that we have the Spirit of God who applies the Word and the grace of God that is present in the freedom we have in Christ to obey, to live out these realities. But verse six says he must not be a recent convert. This speaks to the timing of of his spiritual life. He's not to be spiritually immature. Or he may, here's the danger of immature leadership, he may become puffed up with conceit. He may have desired the task. He may have aspired to the right things. He may have a character and a lifestyle that is proper and is appropriate for the ministry of leadership. But as a new convert, there is a particular danger to conceited puffing up and desire and love for status. Which would make him if he were to be conceited and to be puffed up, it would fit him into the fall and the very condemnation of the devil himself. Right? You remember what the devil fell for when he was in heaven. Satan wanted to be, what? Equal to the Most High. He got pretty excited about being an archangel, being a very important part of God's ministry in heaven, and created beings that were the angels. And his condemnation was conceit and a puffing up. And so he is not to be a novice. He is not to be a recent convert. This does not speak to age or life experience, but that does fit into the concept of an elder at some level. But particularly here, the requirement and the characteristic of a leader within the church is that he not be a recent convert that his spiritual life be matured, be grounded, and be settled before he takes on the responsibility of oversight and leadership. Finally then, the last one, and this is the bookends, that really mirrors an above-reproach lifestyle. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. In other words, the community at large should have nothing against, nothing valid against the shepherd of the local church. Nothing should stick. No charge could be brought that could hold the shepherd or your leaders within the local assembly. Now, there it is. We did the list and the local church leadership is under the judgment of this passage and Titus 1 and 1 Peter 5 and Acts 20. The responsibility is unbelievable The work is hard and it is relentless. And yet God's gifting and calling is the confidence of local church leaders. So let me encourage you on two counts because of this passage. First of all, as your church leaders exemplify these characteristics, imitate them. These ought to be for us as we read our scriptures and as we study through 1 Timothy 3. We ought not see these as separate from us. These are This is a list that's not about us. This is a list that is absolutely for the entire body of Christ save for the gifting for teaching. So apply these and set yourself against this standard. Your desire ought to be to be living a life that is above reproach as a believer. For the sake of the glory of the gospel. Secondly, let me encourage you to pray for your leaders. And in your particular case, for your young leaders who have taken on the oversight, who have been given a stewardship of overseeing a local ministry at such an early age. <clears throat> the weight of responsibility is enormous. And the character qualities that are demanded are beyond our own ability. So pray. Pray that we would depend on grace, that we would live in grace, that we would abide in Christ, that we would abide in the truth, that we would be transforming our minds by the renewing of our minds with the truth, that we would be more and more conformed to the image of Christ so that as we preach and as we teach and as we guard and protect and as we care for the flock entrusted to us, we would do so with the credibility and with the above reproach lifestyle that's demanded of those who serve the chief shepherd. Local church leadership is not determined by worldly or common business standards, right? This is not an organization. This is not corporate America. Leaders are not those who are the most out for their own agenda, the real go-getters who go after what they want, and they won't stop until they get it. Rather, leadership is defined by those who serve and who influence others to follow and pursue the Word of God and the glory of Christ. Leadership is to be held to nothing less than this standard. One of the most fearful things and most exciting things about studying the pastoral epistles with you all is that this is your expectation. This should be your expectation. Nothing less than what God has required. We stand before you wanting this to be the measure of our lives. Wanting our ministry to be marked by credibility because of the grace of God that's evident through a faithful, above-reproach lifestyle. Only then will leadership be effective in equipping the body for ministry and service for the glory of the chief shepherd. Only when these realities are the standard will we see effective ministry accomplished. There may be short-run fruit. There may be short-run effect but the long-term effect of maturing and equipping the body of Christ to serve itself and to serve the kingdom purposes of sharing the gospel to the whole world will only be accomplished as there is credible and above reproach leadership within the local assembly.